Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce. I have an interview for you today with Arno Michaelis, who is a reformed white supremacist and quite a violent one back in the day. And since then, he's gone through a process of deep and lasting change. And now he's helping people to avoid entering into that rigid us versus them mentality that he sees rising up on the left and the right right now in current public discourse. And what he and his partner in the opposite of crime, Pardeek Kalika, are doing now is developing curriculum for school kids and for teachers that does all of that work that diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives are doing right now, but doing it with much more wisdom, compassion, humility, and patience than I've seen in my time spent investigating these various uh, socially just movements. I hope you enjoy. Here you go. Awesome. Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year to you. How's it been out in the Midwest? A lot of festivities and snow? Uh, no, actually very little snow. Like, alarmingly little. We've, mm-hmm. I think we've had uh, maybe a cumulative week of snow coverage like so far this year, which is highly unusual. Hmm. Is it worrisome? <laughs> You guys in a panic because you have all these uh, kids with shovels that need to make allowance so they can buy their Xboxes, but they don't have anything to do. <laughs> well, it, it actually like really fucks with the uh, the ecosystem. Huh. So like, there's like more mosquitoes, and the, the when things don't freeze and the snow cover, like all kinds of plants depend on it to germinate and go through their cycles as do a bunch of animals so it's uh it, it's kind of jarring beyond like huh. the human impact yeah huh interesting and have you been traveling we'll see i we could get you know piled on tomorrow and have snow till march who knows but yeah. so far it's been very very little stuff <laughs> cool well, thanks for joining me. Uh, I just wanted to talk to you about like your experience and stuff and, and uh, get your voice out there. You and your uh, associate, you guys don't run a business together, but you're intimately linked, Pardeep. Um, Pardeep uh, Kalika? Kalek. You guys run an organization yep. that helps to dampen intolerance. Is that correct? What would you say your work is? Uh, we we really make a point of being like what we're about what we're for rather than what we're against. Yeah, okay. It it's always kind of up to me when uh, I'll do some media and the the title splash says that I'm an anti hate activist. Like I I don't want to define myself by what I'm opposed to. I I right. think it's just uh, it's tactically dumb. And um, it's it's uh, it makes you kind of ineffective, actually, because then you're defined by whatever it is that you're opposed to and, and you can't logically exist without it. So uh, we, we don't do anti-hate. We don't do anti-racism. We don't do anti-fascism. We do uh, human kinship. We do service to other human beings. And everything we do is really a celebration of what we see as the oneness of humanity which mm. is very simply that, that we believe that human beings have far more in common than different. And mm. when we can like build a foundation on those commonalities, then our differences can be seen as assets to celebrate and cherish and leverage rather than uh, things to fear and hate each other about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in your and 
Pardeep's book, uh, The Gift of Our Wounds, you lay out the trajectory of your early life. And it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, part of your early life was defined in relationship against something else, or you're very contentious against something else. Is that why you, you're pretty much, you learned your lesson and you don't want to be defined by what you're against or was that mentality something that defined um, you, I guess? That lesson has, has been uh, more driven home by the current political climate than it has by my past, really. Huh. Uh, and, and even back in the day, though, we, we had all kinds of mental, ideological, emotional, spiritual gymnastics we went through to keep ourselves dialed into uh, the, the hateful ideology we were into. And one of them was that back then I would say like, well, I don't hate anyone. I just love my race. Mm. And, and because my race is under assault and because uh, the, the white race that's so mighty yet fragile at the same time is in such dire peril, like, of course I hate the people who put it in peril. That that was like the the logic that I would have trotted out had if I was doing media back in the day. Uh, of course, I was always drunk back then, and that uh, <laughs> <laughs> affected my ability to be uh, reasonable, even with my ridiculously unreasonable ideology. But um, I, I think I was kind of aware of that back then, but not truly aware of the dynamic of it until. I was exposed to the ideology that people call anti-racism today. And and it, it's heartbreaking to me as someone who really wants to see racism diminished in our society. And and I, I, I honestly believe that the, the construct of race is, is a cancer to humanity, and it's been doing horrific mm. damage for over 500 years. Mm. And some very well-meaning people um, – and of course, is I, I don't want to block everybody in a monolithic, you know, lump or demographic. But yeah. uh, while I know people who call themselves anti-racists who do amazing work and really do help people heal and they help people connect, there's also an equal number, if not more, uh, of people who call themselves anti-racists who are really just like shoring up the construct of race. Huh. <clears throat> Everything they do is, is dictated by race. And another interesting thing to me is that when I uh, called myself a racist, my definition of a racist was someone who makes all of their decisions based on race, uh-huh. which I, I proudly admitted that I did when I was a neo-Nazi skinhead. Yeah, I see a lot of people nowadays who make all of their decisions based on race, and they, they call themselves anti-racists. Hmm. So it, it's... It's troubling to me. It, it's um, it, it's an obstacle to the work that I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Uh, Party and I like literally risk our lives at times to do what we do, and and we're that committed to it that we're not going to stop doing it. In fact, we're you know this is our our life's work. This is our passion, and mm-hmm. and sometimes I feel like I'm I'm very busily like cleaning up a mess. And then there's people walking around behind me who claim to have the same objective, and they're just like <laughs> remessing it up again as, as I go. And, huh. um, and not to say that I have all the answers. I, I'm always yeah. about uh, questioning and discussion, and I, I question myself uh, more than anyone. 
Um, I, I'm very wary of dogma of, of any sort of flavor. And uh, I, I think that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm adverse to calling myself anti-anything. Are you, uh, do you have any insights or do you, do you feel like you have any insights into the mentality that whether it's racist or anti-racist still takes on the shape of defining everything in terms of race? Like what draws people into that way of interacting with everybody else in every other situation? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And I, I really learned the answer to that question, uh, partly by looking at my own life and my own story, but largely from listening to party of Kalika and, uh, not only having the honor to, to witness his healing process after his father's murder, but also just being party to this, uh, the immense wisdom that this man has. And uh, he's also very well educated and he's a trauma therapist. Mm. So like mm -hmm. that's his job is to provide mental health therapy for people who have been through trauma. And I, I think the answer to your question is why, you know, what drives the anti-racist, what drives the racist is that when we're traumatized, and all human beings go through trauma of one kind or another in their lives, mm. when we're traumatized, the more traumatized we are, the more conducive our, our thought patterns are to binary uh, ideologies. So mm. like, you know, we're the good guys, you're the bad guys. If you're not with us, you're against us. This is the way it is. There's no mm. disputing it. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not up for debate. The, the more inclined we are to uh, have an affinity for dogma, it happens like the more traumatized we are. And, and when we don't process that trauma in a healthy way, i.e. Mm. through a trauma therapist or through art or service to other people or th through activism, there, there's a lot of activism that, that is very powerful and it changes mm. our society for the better. And these people... Uh, who under, who do it from a trauma-informed space uh, are the mm. ones who are most successful, I believe. But the people who do it without being trauma-informed are, are literally exacerbating the traumas that drove them to have an affinity for this binary thought in the first place. Mm -hmm. It seems like the trauma induces a reaction of rigidity of thought. And that rigidity of thought right. just comes across as a rigidity of, of needing to have everything as stable as possible in the world by having a good guy, a bad guy, or like a, a spectrum of good and bad, but it's always like it has to be uh, put into that spectrum. So it seems like that rigidity is a, a reflex to something. And how, how have you seen good ways to, to relax people or loosen them up, if that is even the correct uh, metaphor, um, in order to be more flexible and more tolerant and more accepting? Yeah, I and mean, I, I it's, a, it's a great metaphor. I, I, another metaphor is that, you know, if you're on, uh, um, I love the ocean. I love being in it and under it. I swim a lot. I'm a scuba diver. But I because of my post-concussion syndrome, I get seasick really easily. So it's mm. hard for me to be on boats, you know, the rougher it gets. But if you're out at sea and you're seasick, one uh, means of uh, easing it is to, like, if you can see the shore to like lock on to something in the horizon that's not moving 
Like if hmm. that's where seasickness comes from is our, our balance uh, mechanisms get all out of whack because everything's moving around. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's important to understand that when traumatized people are looking for that lighthouse or they're looking for the shore or the horizon or something that's not moving, that's a very normal human physiological response. So there, there's nothing wrong with someone who's in that position. It's, mm-hmm. All of us do it to one degree or another. It, the, the problem is, is when you don't realize you're in that position and you don't realize your affinity to, to binary thinking, the, the binary thinking seems like a solution to you, when, when actually it's, it's binary thinking that causes most of the problems that yeah. uh, that people who are anti-whatever decry, whether it's racism or sexism or patriarchy or what have you. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the best way to reach people is through storytelling. Hmm. Because storytelling opens up the possibilities in our minds. And, and really... Uh, I, I, I'm in the in prog- progress of reading a book called Sapiens, and I yeah the yeah me too. name escapes me right now. And I, I, it's a fantastic book, and, and really uh, very interesting and really entertaining. But I, the history of us human beings. But what, one of the things that I that just kind of rocked me the second I, I read it, and I has never left me since, and, it, and it's really like empowered a lot of what I've done, is, is this idea of a cognitive revolution, mm-hmm. where like the, what, what separates us from other primates and from other animals, as far as we can tell, is the human ability to believe in a story. Mm-hmm. And, and, and our ability to have like literally billions of people believing the same story yeah. without knowing each other with, with, while speaking different languages, while living mm-hmm. on other sides of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I.e., you'd be hard-pressed to find any any person on the planet who isn't, like, bought into the concept of money. And money is really the story that we all agree on. Like, okay, yeah. Yeah. The U.S. dollar is worth a dollar, and, and uh, you know, Bitcoin is worth that, and the pound is worth this, or whatever. Yeah. And, like, yeah. that's all... This is all like an imagined a collective fiction that, yeah. that we human beings agree upon, and it it defines the way we live. Exactly, it, it defines everything we do on this planet. So, storytelling is incredibly powerful, and, and for good or bad, I, I believe storytelling is going to be our mm-hmm. doom or mm-hmm. our salvation. Yeah. And actually, it's most inspiring to me because that's where the healing begins. The healing process begins when you can start questioning these binary things that you're you're getting drawn into, and mm-hmm. understanding, as Party puts it, that uh, while post-traumatic stress is very much a thing, and and it like physiologically can destroy a human being, mm-hmm. uh, post-traumatic growth is, is also a thing, and it's every bit as uh, possible as post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. if, if we can start breaking those binary patterns in our thought and open our minds up to possibilities that that are outside of those binary thought patterns. Yeah. It seems like almost, I'm a little wary of uh, ascribing everybody who gets swept up into binary thinking as, uh, as a reflex simply to trauma. It seems like with college, a certain swath of college students get swept up in this uh, activist ideology that takes on binary thinking uh, because they were taught that, not because they necessarily have any trauma themselves, but they, the story itself, the narrative itself is 
pushed upon them in such a way that they kind of they get a sense of trauma through the narrative itself. The, narr- the, the narrative evokes trauma or at least evokes the traumatic response um, in them. And, and I wonder if, I wonder if you're suggesting that it's not so much that we need to defeat a bad narrative so much as instill a narrative competence by exposing people to different narratives um, so that they, they just see that, that life can be lived this way. Life can be lived that way. Responses to trauma can be this way or that way and stuff like that. Would you agree with that? Or yeah, I, I I think there's there's certainly uh, there's a, a agenda driven um, movement, if you will, in our universities currently that's bleeding out in all sorts of areas of society, and uh, yeah, that that creates trauma. Um, hmm. <laughs> I, I, I a lot of times if people aren't bringing their own trauma to the game. Or if they have a shred of their own trauma, that it's kind of a seed that's the the pee under the mattresses yeah. that's uh, that they're feeling. Um, now, when you you pour on taking the world's trauma onto their shoulders, they become legitimately further dramatized. So I I, I would hmm. maintain that trauma is at the okay. root of it, but at the same time agreeing with you that in in certain circumstances, the the trauma is taught. Um, hmm. And, and that's uh, it, it's a it's a scary thing. It's not uh, helping anybody. It, it's not freeing anyone. It's not making our society in any better place. It, to me, I, I'm a huge fan of Occam's Razor, so that's why I, I talk about trauma a lot because you know, we can talk about all kinds of theoretical things about why people hate, why they love, whatever. But hmm. I, I'm a Mr. Rogers fan. Mr. Rogers said that. Uh, Everything every human being does is either um, because of love or, or because of a lack of it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I can I, I fully agree with that. And, and hmm. following this Occam's Razor approach, I think um, trauma is an important thing to understand. Uh, so is love, but but also. Uh, if if we're looking at like the simplest factor behind why people do things and um, what's driving them to do that, I I think a lot of times, or, or it actually the, the biggest factor behind, let, let's talk about all the issues of like a social justice proponent, for example, mm-hmm. um, racism, sexism, patriarchy, transphobia, homophobia. You go down the list of of all these these issues. And none of those issues function without separatism. None of them function hmm. without a, a, they have a prerequisite to say like a, a trans person is different than me. Yeah. A, and therefore that's where fear of, or um, misunderstanding comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, it, racism is I, I'm different than that person because of the color of our skin. Mm-hmm. So without that separatism, without the, mm-hmm. the difference, you, you none of those things function. Mm-hmm. Yet, tragically, a lot of the people who are, especially the ones who, who define themselves as anti, you know, fill in the blank, they, they tend to exacerbate the separatism that these illnesses rely upon in order to function. Mm-hmm. So it, what, what Partip and I do with Serve to Unite is we, we that's why we talk about oneness and we talk about mm-hmm. our, our commonalities as human beings. And that doesn't mean that mm-hmm. we're all identical. It doesn't mean we're all the same. Um, we're, we're not ants. 
yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. why uh, you know Marxism and, and other kinds of really drastic social theories don't work is because we are individuals and mm. we each one of us has a very unique experience. Mm. But that being said, as unique as our experiences are, we still have commonalities that, that I think are, are more important and more powerful than our differences. Yeah, so it it's not the denial of differences, but it's not the magnification of separation. It's the magnification of togetherness or community or or uh, or speaking across differences, making connections, even though the difference doesn't appear in the connection. But you're drawing attention and you're making more important the connection rather than the the disparity or the or the separation. Exactly. And, and within that connection is where the answer to racism lies. Hmm. It, it's where, it didn't go down the line. It's, it's where the answer to sexism, transphobia, homophobia, what, what have you. If, hmm. if I never met a gay person in my life or anyone on the LGBT spectrum, it's much easier for me to fear them, to think something's wrong with them, to mm-hmm. patently say that, that, that whatever they are is wrong. But when you sit and talk with someone and you see them as a human being and you, you, you really connect with them, like, I understand when they said this, I understand when they're talking about that because I've felt those feelings myself. Oh, and by the way, they're attracted to men and I'm attracted to women. But, but like it, it, those differences become more arbitrary mm-hmm. when you sit down and you connect with someone. Mm-hmm. I, I, I am passionate about LGBT rights because – I have friends that I love who are trans, who are gay, who are lesbian, who are bisexual, and they're amazing people. Mm. And and one of the, the things that I'll point out to people who are homophobic is I'm just like, do you just like picture everyone you meet having sex? Because I sure don't. <laughs> like I, I don't meet a straight couple and then all of a sudden like they're their bedroom life comes into my head. It's like mm. it's none of my damn business and I don't Frankly, I don't care to be very interested in the particulars of their sex life. I, mm. I, I make the same point about uh, gay couples. I, I, I know a, a couple of gay men who have been together for over 30 years, and now finally they can be married to each other. And mm. these are both amazing guys who I, I love dearly, and they love me. And they're they're funny, and they're brilliant, and they're they're kind, and they're compassionate, and they're just great human beings. And I enjoy their company. I, and while I'm enjoying their company, I don't sit there and think about the the mechanics of their sex life. Like it's, it's just it's, it's a non-issue, and it's a non-issue because these are my friends, because yeah. they're my brothers, because they're people that I love. If yeah. if I were if I start at the point where like I will never understand them because I've never experienced the oppression that they have, or vice versa, then then where do we go from there? How do we solve the problem of homophobia if we start from this, if if point A is that we can't understand each other? Mm -hmm. Uh, Several months ago, the reason that we connected originally, and I don't want to talk about this person, but I want to bring them up to to throw into relief a a question that I have for you. Um, But we connected because there's somebody who has a similar kind of path in life to you, was a kind of a... I guess, openly racist skinhead and then moved into anti-racist uh, deprogramming work. And and the way that this person was acting online that I saw is that they 
they went from an us versus them mentality to just another us versus them mentality. It seems like the the fundamentalism right. stayed the same, whereas just the 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 trappings of that did. And I'm wondering how how is how was it different for you? How did you get out of what what were the things that allowed you to to let go of that rigidity of thought and move into a more compassionate, uh, less binary or, or more flexible worldview? Like, were there instances or was it just a very long um, uh, growth arc? Uh, in my case, uh, Buddhist, my Buddhist faith and meditation are, are huge. It, it's, uh, it really shapes my relationship with the world. Um, just practicing being present, practicing being mindful, not worrying about the future or regretting the past, but keeping my mind as present as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. In that, that moment where you're present, there's possibility that's just limitless. Hmm. Like we're, we're not completely constrained by our worry or, or hindered by our regret. So mindfulness meditation uh, within the Dharma is, is really just a, a study of that. It's, it's about interdependence. It's mm -hmm. about impermanence. Um, that, that's been a huge help for me. And within that context, like kind of empowered through meditation and, and seeing like the, the flexibility seeing that your mind can literally go anywhere and do anything. Hmm. Um, and, and really understanding that inner peace can only come from within. Uh, hmm. If my inner peace is subject to something that, yeah, yeah, go figure, right? It sounds crazy, but it's true. Um, if my inner peace is subject to something that somebody else does or does not do, yeah. then it, it's, it's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very empowering to, to believe mm -hmm. that your inner peace is completely up to you. And when you believe that, you, you believe that other people can do it also because I, they're no more or less human than I am. And um, if I can do this, there's no reason why anybody else can't either. So the, this, the, the, the comfort that that inner peace gives is uh, such a, a, an asset. When you're you're working mm. as an activist, you're you're working with uh, really pressing social issues that are causing acute harm. It's uh, it's almost a, a crucial element of your toolkit to have that inner peace and to have that mindfulness mm. uh, mm -hmm. approach to to the work that you're doing. And when you don't have that. Uh, and you don't understand that. It, it's one thing about understanding it. It's another thing about having it. Uh, there are certainly mm -hmm. times every single day when my inner peace gets thrown all out of whack by something that somebody else does. So it's not like I'm immune to this. It, it's, but, I, but now I can remind myself, say, okay, well, you know, where does your inner peace come from? Who's in control of it? I'm mm -hmm. in control of it. Not, mm -hmm. you know, dudes making crazy comments on, on my Facebook page. Um, yeah. So it, it have, being armed with that knowledge is, is a big deal. And, and I, think, uh, I think also what's important is, is this certainly comes into play with the, the person in question. Um, humility is, is an important thing also. Just the, the ability to admit that you're wrong, to say, hey, you know what, I, I don't know. I, I could be I, – I have a lot of people um, – we started out talking about uh, what could be seen as some – evidence of climate change and and uh all i know is what i see living here in wisconsin it hasn't yeah. snowed at all it's weird it's supposed to snow 
Yeah. Uh, beyond no, beyond that, I'm not a climate change expert. So when when someone who thinks climate change is all bullshit comes to me and they start rattling off all this stuff, or when someone says climate change is like the most depressing problem facing human beings right now, I I listen to both of them because I don't know. I I don't. That's not my ball of wax. It's not yeah. my forte. I I know when to say like this is something that I need to know more about. And, and honestly, I think I need to know more about everything. Um, mm-hmm. So just the, the humility to say I don't know. Mm-hmm. is is a, a really powerful um, tool to use every day. And it's also it also works wonders for your inner peace. I must be right. Everyone yeah. must submit to my idea of rightness. And it's like, no, you know what? I, I don't know. <laughs> so um, that those are both really important things. And I, I think that when people lose sight of being mindful, when people lose sight of uh, the the power of not knowing, then they, they hmm. very often find themselves in a position where they are jumping from one us versus them narrative to another. To yeah. where, and, and interestingly, in, in all these us them narratives, of course, the the person in question is the protagonist. Um, hmm. I, hmm. I, yeah. I I would have said I was the good guy thirty years ago when I was attacking people because of the color of their skin. Um, and yeah. when somebody was doing that 30 years ago now says they're the good guy when they are, uh, attacking even though they don't people. advocate physical attacks uh, on people, they're, they're attacking people on Twitter. They're attacking people verbally. Um, and, yeah. and really sometimes it's in this really pathetic, like display of attention getting, mm-hmm. um, it's because they're not mindful and it's because they, they mm-hmm. can't just say, I don't know. What what broke you out of being a racist then? Was it connections or was it like something in reality just smacked you in the face or? Uh, it, was, it was going to rave parties on the south side of Chicago. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a man of extremes. Um, oh, okay. I, I, I went from being a violent, uh, hateful racist to being like a completely peaceful, loving, like raver and shaking his ass to house music on the <laughs> south side of Chicago at four in the morning on Sunday in some like dilapidated, filthy warehouse with 3,000 people of every possible ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic background, gender identity, sexual identity, whatever. And, and, and honestly, it, being amongst this like hyper diverse group of people, and seeing everyone not just getting along, but like literally loving each other and not loving yeah. in a sexual way, but like loving just in a human spiritual way to uh-huh. look upon someone else and just be like, that guy is my brother. That that woman is my sister. And, and whether my brother or sister, I, however they were born or whatever they want to identify, that's fine. If they say they're my brother, if they say they're huh. my sister, that's fine. If if they're, they're black, if they're red, yellow, brown, white, whatever, yeah, if they're yeah, rich, yeah. if they're poor, like go down the list of all these things that we fear each other about and, and that mm. we hate each other about. I, I saw all that shit like blown out of the water, just like going to rave parties. And, mm. and yeah, uh, drugs were a part of it. Like mm. I, I'd be lying if I said that taking MDMA in that environment didn't like shock me into seeing huh. a possibility that I didn't see before. Um, 
And, and at the same time, I, you know, I do talks with kids in middle school and high school, and I, I, I have to be very careful. I don't want to like so, tell kids like, oh, just go eat a bunch of ecstasy and that'll sort you out. Like, it's, it's yeah. not that not that easy, and, and it's not yeah. uh, it's not that simple. Huh. But um, in my case, those were the things that that really made me see that racism was not only stupid and wrong, but it was just like it was not the natural order of things. Hmm. Um, I. Going back to the book *Sapiens*, the the author like makes a, a, a point of how tribalism is something that we've been dealing with forever and will always be dealing with. It. I don't disagree with that, but I I think um, hmm. you can still. It's up to us what our tribe is. Hmm. <laughs> so you know yeah. we we're the only ones that that ultimately define what our tribe is. And I I would actually. Uh, quote the first hidden scene in Marvel's Black Panther, which I thought was a fantastic movie. And uh, when T'Challa is addressing the United Nations, kind of like, hey, Wakanda is a thing. We were been here. We're going to share all our stuff with you because we're all the same tribe. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Th- that that's him showing the leadership and showing the, the, the strength of character and the spiritual yeah. strength to say, like – I, I come from a country of, of these five tribes and you know, we're, we're very starkly divided, but we're all the same tribe when it comes down to it. Like no, yeah. nothing stops us from staying that, but ourselves. Yeah. Is there a way to, to, to not overcompensate for like, for instance, like the social justice stuff or progressivism, which is uh it, it just, it looks very tribal. Right. And, and one thing that I got caught up in myself when I critiqued it, I just started getting more and more into being like an anti SJW thing. And I'm like, they're not my tribe. And I, I, I went into tribal warfare with people because they were too tribal. And how, <laughs> right. what's, what's the way, how do I, how do I embrace somebody who wants to be separate, who wants to form a very tight us versus them, uh, rhetoric and, and behavior? How do I not, react to make that stronger is there a way do i just let it alone or no i i really think the 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 key ingredient to successfully navigating those situations is compassion and again going back to trauma if uh Hmm. if someone is is like raging against the white supremacist capitalist oppressor and everything has to be smashed and torn down and straight white guys are the enemy and they all need to be you know rounded up or whatever Mm-hmm. And, and at times the, the rhetoric certainly gets that extreme. Yeah. Um, the, the reason why they're acting like that is the same reason why neo-Nazis act the way they do. It's because mm-hmm. they're hurt and it's because they haven't processed trauma that they're either that they're going through and, and their historical trauma in mm-hmm. a healthy way. And um, it, it's one thing to, to observe that, and it's another one to get them to buy into that and say, oh, yeah, wow, I need to go to therapy, or I, I need to yeah. process this trauma. Yeah. Yeah. You, typically, the, the, sec- the latter is not nowhere near as easy, but the, the former is something that's completely up to you. It's completely up to me. Is it, when I see someone hmm. uh, spouting separatist rhetoric from either side of the political spectrum, and both of uh, when you get to the political polls, they are literally mirror images of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's critical thinking shuts down, dogma takes over. It's us versus mm-hmm. them. We're right, you're wrong. We're oppressed. You're the oppressor. Like on down the line, the, the thought patterns are absolutely identical, and and the the thought pattern 
the affinity for those thought patterns comes from trauma. So if I if I'm compassionate, and all compassion is 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 bearing witness to that trauma. Hmm. It doesn't mean that whatever they're doing is okay. It doesn't mean I agree with it. It doesn't mean that I accept it. All it means is that I understand they're acting that way because they're hurt. Hmm. And now that that creates space for me to not reflect the aggression. Oh, okay. Yeah. And to not feed into this this cycle that's like creating this very like. Hmm. magnificent sense of polarization yes that's happening yes. in our society so mm -hmm. i i think compassion is is uh and, and i i love i love the word weaponize and i i love the idea of weaponizing compassion and weaponizing forgiveness huh. uh we had a uh there's a, a really cool kind of think tank joint called gen next that we do a lot of work with and, and interestingly within gen next there are like hardcore republicans and there are hardcore democrats and it's people from all over the political spectrum uh who are very successful and they want to have a positive impact in education mm. security and economic mobility and um they've they've been huge supporters of ours for uh eight years now and it was Pardeep and i walking around new york city with their executive director michael davidson and Michael is the one who observed. He's like, you guys like weaponize compassion. It's just mm -hmm. the most amazing thing. And I, I never thought of it that way before. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, Michael. Hell yeah. That's exactly. What do you mean what by that? Mean. What do you mean by uh, that? Well, the, it, what I mean by it is, is that, uh, and this is like an interesting element of Buddhism. In, in Buddhism, the idea of warriorship is, is talked about quite a bit. And a lot of people at first glance would be like, oh, you're saying peace, but you're also saying you're a warrior. And it's like, well, to me, warrior means that um, I, I don't let fear lead me by the nose. It, it doesn't mean that I never experience hmm. fear. It just means when I do experience fear, I, I observe it. I, I kind of dissect it. I, I feel it. And then I let it pass. And, hmm. and I, I could draw wisdom from it without letting that fear lead me by the nose. So if I'm a warrior and, and I'm engaged in this conflict, I'm engaged in, in a war where there are objectives that I want to accomplish, mm -hmm. my, my personal mission statement is to bring about a society where all people are valued and included. In order to accomplish that objective, I need weapons. I, mm -hmm. I can't do it unarmed. <laughs> so the okay. weapons I choose to use when, when trying to accomplish this tactical objective are the weapons that are um, most devastating to my enemy. And my enemy is not human beings. My enemy is suffering. Uh, mm. It's the suffering that drives human beings to hurt each other and hate each other. And so if I'm the weapons I'm going to choose when I'm looking through my, you know, Batman tool belt or whatever, are the weapons that are going to be best for the case and, mm. and, there, there are very few situations where compassion is not a, a tremendous asset. And, and I, I say that absolutely literally. I, I have a buddy, uh, Rob Dubois, who's a Navy SEAL for 30 years. He wrote a brilliant book called A Powerful Peace. And he talks about the balance between hard and soft response hmm. when you're, you're uh, in any sort of military conflict. And, and he points out that if you're unbalanced, if you have, you know, you're too soft or you're too hard, you're not going to yeah. succeed. And he talks about all the problems that happen when you're, you know, leaning towards either way. 
Compassion is what helps you be balanced between hard and soft response. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not a pacifist. If somebody came and put their hands on me, if somebody came and put their hands on you and I was around, like I'm, I'm going to use physical force to stop that. But as I'm using that force, I, I even as <laughs> if, I'm a, if I'm, you know, subduing someone physically, I'm going to remind myself like this person's acting this way because they're suffering. It doesn't mean I don't physically stop them, but it does mean that I don't like keep hurting them once they've been subdued. And it does mean that after they've been subdued and, and hopefully put somewhere where they can't hurt themselves or other people, going forward, I remind myself that they're doing that because they're suffering, not because they're evil, not because they're inherently bad. That they, they have an inherent goodness that we can connect to if we use compassion as a weapon in that process. Hmm. And do you, do you think that how do you deal with somebody who is lost? Have you seen people who are just like beyond help and, and how do you maintain, like, what do you do with somebody like that? Well, I, I, I honestly believe that, that no one is beyond help. Now, okay. now that being said, I, there are certainly times when I throw my hands up there, there are certainly people that are beyond my help. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Uh, yeah, as far as my abilities go, and my abilities yeah. are as limited as anyone's. Um, mm -hmm. So I, there, there are people that are beyond my help, and when that's done, uh, obviously from a safety standpoint, we you have to make sure that um, people are safe. That that uh, you know physical harm is is off the table, and, and that the, the person's cap capability for physical harm yeah. is yeah. Uh, addressed. But uh, beyond that, I, I, I think um, what helps me a lot in, in that type of scenario, and this is also something we, we talk about with educators when we're doing professional development, is uh, thinking about the truth of cultivation. And, and this is all kind of Dharma 101 also, and it, it's not exclusive to Buddhism, all, pretty much all spiritualities, and a lot of just secular philosophy touches on this also, but just the idea that all of our actions we com commit in the world around us are, are seeds and they have mm. effects on other things and on other people. And sometimes the seeds that we plant might take a long time to germinate. They, they might take a long time to come to fruition. In, in fact, mm. it's, it's more likely that those seeds will come to fruition outside of our presence rather than inside it. And I, I say this mm. from experience in that mm. a big factor in me leaving hate groups was people who I claimed to hate who had the courage to treat me with kindness when I huh. least deserved it. And these acts of kindness did not change me on the spot. Uh, th there were times when I, I literally ran away from black people who were being kind to me because it like completely like discombobulated me really? like this is wrong like black people are evil savages uh, they're they're inferior to me how how is how is this person like defying everything i'm about with a smile with, mm. with the with the, the refusal to to play by my rules and instead making me play by theirs and i would run away physically and mm. and at times i'd go i'd get as drunk as i could get and i'd go attack someone else on the street just trying to put space between me and this little experience, this, this moment that indicated how wrong I was beyond a shadow of a doubt, 
those experiences, as much as I tried to like rip them from who I was and rip, like extract them from my experience, my experience and pretend that they never happened, they stuck with me. And they were essentially seeds that made it, that took root and grew despite my best efforts hmm. and ultimately brought me to a place where it didn't make sense anymore to be hateful and violent. So if, if I'm talking with a teacher who's a teach, teaching in high school and, and they're um, unfortunately in a lot of our, our inner cities, like these teachers are as shell shocked as the, their students are. There, there's tremendous trauma. There's tremendous challenge happening in these neighborhoods. And these kids are, are coming from environments where they have no stability and they have they have they don't have like the basic things on Maslow's hierarchy of needs that they need. Yeah. And it affects their behavior, which affects the classroom, which affects the teachers. And the teachers are just like, I'm just doing time. I'm just getting a paycheck. Like, I just need to survive this. And hmm. I, I can relate to all parties involved. Like, I can understand that they're all coming from a place of trauma. But my advice to the teachers is, hmm. as difficult as a student may be, when you are spending time with them and you are legitimately like giving them all that you are, you, you are giving them all your attention and all your presence and you, you legitimately care about them, even though they might punch you in the mouth in response. The, the fact is, is that there, there, there's a very good possibility that sometime hmm. in that student's life, it might be a year from then, it might be 10 years from then, that they, they'd be sitting there having that thought like, well, you know, Mr. Boyce was right. Or, or not even that he was right, but say, I remember that time he sat and listened to me. I remember that time where I could really feel that he cared about me. And, and, and it, hmm. it, it doesn't, it, it usually will not show itself on the spot. So that I, it's something that, hmm. that I take heart in because it's a truth that I'm familiar with. And, and when you're dealing with people, you're like, okay, I'm done. I can't even deal with this dude. Like next, <laughs> you know, I, can't, I can't do it anymore. Um, I, I remind myself of, of that truth of cultivation. Yeah. So it seems like to recapitulate, you're saying we need to be humble, compassionate and patient. Yeah. And with those those things like that, that's how you affect change in the world. That's like the, the roots of your activism, the, the pillars of your of your uh, your activism then. I'm sure there's oh, yeah, more, but absolutely. I, I like Buddhism 101, and, and this is so difficult, to, so hard to deal deal with. Uh, and I'm a huge like Beastie Boys fan because they were kind of like welcoming me when I got out of the movement, and their their music and their lyrics were really powerful. And huh. there's actually a, a a song on um, ill communication, uh, Bodhisattva Val, which was done by Adam Yao, who's passed away. Uh, but in the song, he, he, he talks about when uh, the lyric, correct lyrics is escaping me, but the end of it is, he says, I take it as an opportunity to exercise patience. And that's Buddhism 101. It's like if somebody's really bothering yeah. you, like they're, they're just ruining your day for whatever yeah. reason or another, you sit there and you're like, and, and I, I usually say this through gritted teeth myself, but I'm just like, Thank you for the opportunity to practice patience. I'm yeah, very yeah, yeah, grateful. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, yeah. and it's it's hard and it sucks sometimes, but but it's very true. It, yeah. it, and that when when you have that faith in your own 
inner peace and you have that faith in humanity and the faith that what we're our entire existence is just a good thing at its core that's what allows you to grit your teeth and thank someone for giving you the opportunity to to practice patience when they're really pissing you off yeah the Uh, the, it's a powerful thing the etymological root of patience is actually to suffer and I, I, I learned that when I was working in preschool and, and having to exercise patience. It's not just a detachment from the moment. It's right, an engagement right. with the moment of just like, I will suffer on your behalf. I will. Uh, yeah. So just. A, that, well, that, that's, a, that's a beautiful, beautiful element of that. I, I was not aware of the uh, etymology of that. Um, it, it reminds me of uh, I, I have a, a friend who's a former Israeli settler who was like very violently, you know, removing people from land he felt mm. was his and uh, very much like exacerbating the, the conflict there. And mm. he has since kind of turned his life around and he now works for uh, weaving social fabric between Israelis and Palestinians. But he had told me that uh, in Hebrew, and I, I, even if I knew the words in Hebrew, I wouldn't attempt to pronounce them, but uh, <laughs> in Hebrew, the root word of their word for freedom is responsibility, mm. Mm. Which, which I think is incredibly profound. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, you mm. know, freedom is is not just like doing whatever the hell you want. Freedom yeah. is 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 root like true freedom, to, yeah. like freedom from being swayed by all the things that are happening around you, which which I think is really the only true freedom. Uh, yeah. um, that true freedom it carries with it a, a prerequisite of responsibility. You need to be responsible for it uh, in your heart, first yeah. and foremost. And so yeah. uh, it's, it's it's a cool thing to study uh, where words come from. Yeah, yeah. The um, it, it seems like I mean we can get into the the word games and stuff, but just you talking about freedom and responsibility, and and it seems like like with a lot of the well intentioned activists. They end up taking too much responsibility, which has to do with them uh, not being humble anymore, like wanting to be taking too much responsibility, wanting to make too much change right now. And in that process of rushing and and assuming too much, they end up um, reducing people into smaller and smaller units that just need to be pushed around or reshuffled or or, or shoved out of discourse and stuff like that. So it's interesting that that that's kind of like the progress that I see happening. I, I think that's, that's certainly fair to say. And, and while I agree that that's like, that's a very acute problem in itself. Um, it's, it's, I always remind myself that, uh, the last thing you want to hear when you're talking about an acute problem that is causing you pain, like as we speak is that, well, it's eventually going to get better. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> you don't want to hear that. That's yeah. that. Yeah. And, and it's, whether or not it's right is 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 aside beside the point. The the point yeah. is like I'm hurting now. Something needs to change like this instant, and I, I'm not gonna just sit and wait till it gets better. I want to do something about it. Yeah. So when when people, uh, yeah. I, I need to be mindful that that's where people are coming from a yeah. lot of the time. Yeah. At the same time, that that's not like a recipe for success. Is is like long term consequences be damned. These huge 
dynamics that are all in play don't matter. All I care about is my immediate gratification and the, and gratification by the means meaning the pain needs to stop. Yeah. Um, that is as much of a a source of, of pain and suffering as anything else, which which is again, is Buddhism 101. The, the first noble truth of Buddhism is just that life is suffering. There's no getting around it. There's no Mm. more. We're going to suffer even though we don't want to. And this like desperation that we human beings naturally have to try to avoid suffering is, is part of the problem also. Are you and Pardeep, uh, you guys work locally or are you branching out or are there any new initiatives on the horizon? Uh, we, we've been working, our our Serbian Unite program has been, uh, focused in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, up until a, a year ago, uh, we all of our schools were in the Milwaukee area. Just this year, we've added two schools that are one is in rural Wisconsin, like way out in the sticks. The other one's a, a suburb of Madison, and um, so now we have schools in our program from pretty drastically different uh, areas of Wisconsin, and and the the, pot, the kids from these areas are have those uh, corresponding differences in experience and and in uh, just who they are demographics. Um, we, we're excited to take the Serbian night concept uh, internationally. We I, part of what Serbian night does is we connect young people with people we call global mentors, who mm. are. Uh, you typically either former violent extremists like myself or survivors of violent extremism like party who are from all over the world and have like really amazing stories themselves, but also mm. do really powerful work. And uh, a great example of that is a, a dear friend of mine, uh, Soren Lerke, who is from uh, Hilero, Denmark. It's about 45 minutes northwest of uh, Copenhagen. Soren is a former Antifa. Hmm. Uh, and, and we were both kind of contemporaries. Huh. So at, when we were both in our heyday, like we literally would have killed each other. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I huh. drive around Copenhagen with Soren and he'll be like, yeah, in that corner once I spied a neo-Nazi and I texted it into my buddies and then 10 of us jumped him and stabbed him. Yeah. Like if, if they suspected you were a neo-Nazi, they chopped down your door with a fire axe and whip a Molotov in your house. Okay. And, and it's like it's easy for me to like lose sight of my brutality and be like, well, you guys are nuts. But like I, <laughs> I think about things I did that were equally abhorrent, and um, it, it just the, the friendship that Soren and I have nowadays is is something I'm super grateful for. But like our connection with Denmark happens on all kinds of levels. There's a uh, hmm. Danish tradition of a community meal. That the that people from the community come together and organize and prepare and serve and, and clean up uh, kind of as a in a communal way, and the purpose of the meal is that if you're lonely, you can go there and meet a new friend, mm. and, and like the only rule is that you have to sit and talk with you have to sit and eat with someone you never met before, hmm. and and it's called failishpeasning, and I've seen Soren organize these in Hilerode, uh for the past few years. And he started out with like 50 people, which was amazing for a start out. But now he has like 200, 300 people at all mm-hmm. these English meetings. And I, I'll never, they're all like the elderly people at Hilerode are so dialed into this. They're like, oh, it's time for Fehlerspiesning. And they're like, they're <laughs> helping to cook it and they're doing the dishes and they're sitting and talking with people. And, 
at the first one I went to, there was a, a guy from Bulgaria there. He was like in his mid twenties and he had come to uh, Denmark just seeking opportunity. Bulgaria was a mess. And he was like, yeah, you know, it's Denmark. So I got, you know, I got a place to live and I got food and I have healthcare and I, you know, I'm going to school. I have everything I need and I'm looking for a job, but like, I don't have any friends. And, and he was like, there were tears in his like welling up in his eyes where he's like, I've already made two friends today at the Spanish bees thing. Like we're going to hang out next weekend. Like it, it was just like, you could see this guy's entire world has changed because he sat down hmm. and had a discussion with someone and he has a new friend. So we have students in Milwaukee now who are organizing a failure speasing under Soren's direction. Oh, uh, just last uh, Friday, that we had Soren in class via Skype and the, the kids were asking him about his past and like his story, but they're also like, what's the best kind of food to serve for Palish Beesing? How do you promote it? Like, where should we have it? And, and hmm. Soren's having that conversation with them. So like that, that's how Serve to Unite connects okay. places yeah. all over the globe. And, and we're really hmm. excited to do that. Um, we, we also just returned from Baraboo, Wisconsin where uh, there was a viral photo of a bunch of Baraboo High School seniors uh, giving Nazi salutes. Oh, and, and, yes. Uh, okay. This photo that happened. And we worked with the kids who were in that photo. Oh, we, okay. we worked with, we, we spent an entire day at that high school. Uh, we did a keynote for the whole school, and then we had six breakout sessions with smaller groups of students from the entire school really getting into some deep discussion about hmm. what happened, why it was a, a big deal, uh, and how to respond to it. And, and I was like most blown away by, by one young man in particular who was in the photo. And he was like the kind of the ringleader of the accountability for it. He, he came out and said, like, you know, when this first happened, I was like, whatever, it's not a big deal, get over it, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. But then, like, the more he opened himself up and the more he was able to say, look, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I should listen to people when they tell me why this hurts them and, and why this is such a harmful thing. And once he hmm. did, he was like, I need to be accountable for this. Hmm. Like, I, And if some of these guys in this picture aren't going to be accountable, then I need to be all the more accountable. Huh. And and what what kind of took it to another level and this is like a high school kid he was like i understood that my response to this incident is going to define the rest of my life like this is going to be the difference between me being like a ceo or somewhere or being a burger flipper like Mm -hmm. am i the type of person who leads and takes responsibility and says hey you know what we we fucked up like we need to we need to answer for this. We need to be accountable. Like let's talk about ways we can do that. Or is he the guy that says, yeah, whatever, get over it. It's not a big deal. Hmm. And, and you know, which one of those two? Which one of those people are going to be successful in life? It, it's not the person who just brushes off uh, their mistakes. It's the person who really learns, not only learns from them, but like leans into them and says, hey, how can, I, how can I be better from this? And how can I, how can I serve people who may have been uh, affected by, the, by what I did? Mm-hmm. 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 And, and it, to provide, like, it, it seems like that's a worthy goal. And it seems like for whatever reason, you guys have a recipe to provide an awakening from within rather than an imposed sort of this is why you're wrong and this is you know, because where does that go? What's the end of like, this is why you're wrong. If the, if the person doesn't, if the person doesn't recognize that they'll just keep on doing it. Or 
Absolutely. And, and I, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of restorative justice. I, I, Could I'm you define pro- that? Because that gets thrown around and abused a it, whole lot. It does. Lot. It, it becomes kind of loaded. Um, restorative justice to me is, is a process. Uh, simply put, restorative justice is a process to uh, bring an offender to a point of to understand the harm that they've done and to be accountable for it. You're not going to make someone understanding and accountable by mm. punishing them. You're not going to. You can't bludgeon someone into being understanding. You can't bludgeon someone to being accountable. So mm. restorative justice, and there's all sorts of different ways to do it. There's, there's, mm. and and I would add to this that I I'm very um, wary of throwing the word justice around, and and the reason why is because justice. It is there, there's no scenario where justice is not a subjective thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, so it's a balance of to, severity and mercy or, or hardness exactly. and softness. It has, it's totally situation dependent. It, it, and it's, it's demographic dependent. It's, it's like your background is going to define what your vision of justice is. Mm-hmm. Uh, half the people in this country think that the death penalty is justice. And the other half think it's the biggest injustice ever. And so, like, that's how drastically ideas of justice are going to vary. And I think it's a very dangerous thing to say, my justice is the one true justice. And, and you're all going to, like, cut, you're all going to knuckle <laughs> under to it. Like, that, that's, a, that's a recipe for suffering as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Restorative justice is about dialogue. It's about understanding. I think it's about, um, it's about a healing process, not only for the victim of the action, but it, it very importantly, it is their healing process as well. But it's also about the healing process for the offender addressing whatever suffering drove them to commit that offense. Okay. Um, and, and it's interesting to me that a lot of the biggest proponents of restorative justice are the same ones calling for every single one of these kids in the Baraboo photo to be suspended and labeled for life as a hate crime offender, and, and to be like you know just ruined from from that day forward. I, I that that is the absolute worst response you can do. Mm. Um, so I, I was really glad that we had an opportunity to uh, be involved in that healing process, and and I think my principles are very important to me, and and I when I talk about justice from a restorative space it has to mean most of all for people that i despise the most Hmm. it's not just like oh restorative justice for people i'm sympathetic to but if i don't like the offender then fuck them like lock them up for life and make them suffer like no that's not to me that's not justice justice is is even-handedly applying a a principle to all offenses and, and I understand it's difficult, but if, if we're going to be a proponent of restorative justice for the kid in the inner city who murdered a 13-year-old in a drive-by just from a stray bullet, then we, we also need to be a proponent of restorative justice for the kids in Baraboo who, in just like a moment of teenage dipshittery, decided it would be funny to do a Nazi salute. Like, it, yeah. you don't... It's 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 not subject to the whims of our our political and social uh, <laughs> affinities. It, it it has to be applied evenly across the board. And and, and by the way, I I'm an advocate for restorative justice in both of those scenarios. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I I don't I, the whole like hard on, people commit crime because they're suffering. So making them suffer more is not going to result in less crime. Yeah. That to, to me, it's it's just simple logic. 
Well, Arno, like it seems like what you're peddling requires so much maturity on behalf of everybody <laughs> that it's like <laughs> it, it, it does. Um, and, and that's a good point. Uh, and, and I, I would point out that I, I, in many ways, I'm, I'm one of the most immature people you're ever going to meet. I, I, I think I'm working on my seventh childhood right now, and I, I'm pretty much committed <laughs> to never, ever becoming an adult. Um, hmm. And, and party is similar in a lot of ways. Him and I get really goofy. But uh, it, it does require a level of maturity. I, to me, I, I think the way to incentivize, incentivize that maturity is just to, to show that it works. And, and in Partyp's, uh, that's why Partyp is such a powerful example. Uh, Partyp is, this is a man whose entire being, his, his community and everything he was, was like brutally attacked by a very hateful, miserable man who said that not only did Partyp and his, and, and six in general, like not only did they not belong in the United States, they didn't belong on the face of this earth. And he just walked in and started shooting people in the face. Like it, it, you'd be hard into hard a press to exact into a place of worship on, on a beautiful sunny Sunday morning. And mm. party responds to this, not just by saying it. And I, and I love this. He's like to him, forgiveness is vengeance. And and this is a big point that we want to like put front and center because like all these these activist people, like they want to fight. They they want to smash something. They want to fight for the oppressed people. It's like, okay, well, if you want to really have your vengeance on the white supremacist capitalist oppressor, like what does that look like? Does that look like uh, this endless cycle of domination ideology and suffering and oppress oppression? Or does it look like freedom from all of those things? <laughs> and if we look at Partyp's personal example you see that freedom. The man who killed Pardeep's dad and five other people wanted to destroy Pardeep's life. He wanted him to be destroyed by August 5th, 2012. And the complete opposite happened. Pardeep has not been destroyed by August 5th, 2012. He has been empowered by it. He has been uh, hmm. enhanced by it. He has, he has become a better father, a better husband a better son, a better therapist, a better community member because of this horrific hate crime mass murder that happened. Right. And the reason he was able to do that is because he forgave the shooter. Hmm. And he said, I, I refuse to, to give you one ounce of my energy that could be used to, to be a dad to my four kids, hmm. to be a, a, a husband to my wife, to be a son to my widowed mother. If he were sitting around stewing about Wade Michael Page or stewing about hate groups or stewing about white supremacy in general, that that's all energy that's drawn away from the things that he really cares about in his life. Hmm. So to have vengeance, to, to truly defy the objective of the shooter, he forgives him. That's hmm. weaponized forgiveness. Hmm. That, hmm. That, that, and so if we're talking about you need a level of maturity – I, I want to start out by talking to someone's self-interest. Like, what do you want? I want to smash the white supremacist capitalist oppressor. Okay, what's the best way to do that? What does that look like? Does it look like uh, letting the white supremacist capitalist oppressor like rent space out in your head and live there for free every waking moment of your life? Or does it look like you thriving and helping other people thrive and helping other people heal despite white supremacy. 
despite economic systems that you find oppressive, despite mm. these huge mac macro issues, like which one truly is mm. is victory? Mm. Which objective are, are you after? And and so appealing to people's self interest, mm. I, I think, is a very important uh, part of the process. And mm. and that's when somebody sees what you got, they see something successful, they see party and and the success that he's had uh, in the aftermath of this atrocity. It's even the, the most immature and the most suffering person is going to have that inkling in their head to be like, I, I need what this guy has. Like, I need to listen to him. Yeah. And, and so I, I think that's a, a, an important factor when we're talking about like where that maturity comes from. Yeah. To go, to go back to your, your seed, planting a seed, it seems like Pardeep has turned his whole life into a seed that can be oh, observed from, from multiple different angles or different people. Absolutely. Well, and, and Pardeep is a type of person where his, his entire life he's been like that. Mm. Uh, even when he was a little, when Pardeep was the first person in his family to ever graduate from college. And he graduated mm. from Marquette University here in Milwaukee. It was a very prestigious uh, Jesuit college. If, if you talk to any doctor or lawyer in the Midwest, like half of them came through Marquette. Okay. It's a type of a school where not only the quality of the education, but the, the network you're plugged into really empowers you to, to be or do anything you want. Hmm. So with, with Pardeep's degree, he could have went on to be a, an attorney or a doctor or a banker or whatever type of job that would have brought him all sorts of success. And in instead, he chose to be a cop in the, the core of Milwaukee's inner city because he felt it was his duty to serve the people in the neighborhood where he grew up in. Huh. So this is, you're talking about the type of person who is kind of naturally like this. And, yeah. and yeah, most people aren't, <laughs> it's a sad fact. But, um, yeah. I, I, I also think that all comes into play with, to, to really like underline the, the, the power and just the grace of, of everything Pardeep has been able to do since August 5th. And, mm. and it's, it's absolutely something that I think any human being on earth can look at and say, I have a lot to learn from this guy and I, I'm going to yeah. humble myself and do that. So you guys have a book, the gift of our wounds. Is there a website that people can go if they want to support you or get more information? Is there like a resource that you guys have? Yeah, absolutely. Our website is giftofourwounds.com. Okay. And uh, on giftofourwounds.com, our main page is really to uh, highlight the book and uh, it'll bring it all to online outlets where you can get it. Yeah. Uh, the book is from St. Martin's Press. It's in Barnes & Noble. You can go buy the physical book at, at finer bookstores everywhere. It's available online in every format. Um, and the same website will also link to our Serve to Unite site, uh, okay. which is at servetounite.org. It's a, a subdomain of the gift website. And I'm, I'm also very excited about uh, a project we just kicked off last year called Gift Magazine. And Gift Magazine is a collection of content that we're, we're creating. Uh, some of it is written, some of it is uh, video, but it's all storytelling about other people who have found the gift in their wounds. Yeah. So it's it's a really fun, it, it's a very, it's, it's, it is fun to explore at times, uh, as, as serious and, and as uh, traumatic as, as our wounds can be, like finding that gift in them can really just change the way everything in your life looks. And mm -hmm. and so far already, we've had uh, interviews with like 
really amazing civil mm-hmm. rights icons like Dr. Bernice King, the, the daughter of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and, and as well as like just people that I know from here and there who, who wrote about the, the wounds mm-hmm. that they've incurred. Our, one of our more recent stories is uh, from a, a young lady named Claire LaPat, who I met at a talk uh, at her high school in Philadelphia. And uh, since then, her and I, her and I bonded because we both have post-concussion syndrome. So we, we were kind of talking about the, the woes of that. But uh, Claire's Jewish, and her uh, mom and dad were in Pittsburgh the day of the, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, and they mm. were actually going to that synagogue. And just mm. because of, like, circumstances, they ended up not being there. Mm. Uh, and, and Claire writes about her experience of, like, how shocked she was to, like, think about how her parents narrowly – uh, avoided being in the midst of that shooting and, and mm. the, the the wound that she felt as, as a Jew and, and as someone who's connected to that society. But also the, the gift that she found in this situation was not only how so all these various communities came together behind the Jewish community of Squirrel Hill, but it, especially how uh, the Muslim community like really mobilized and like raised money to cover all the funerals and, and like just absolutely just went and stood next to the, the, the people from the tree of life synagogue. So like that, that's an example of the, the kind of mm-hmm. content that we have. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Bernice King did, did a, a, a video interview with us talking about the, the gifts of her wounds and, and also how we, we, we can see value in the wounds that we've expressed experience as a society and that actually our our salvation lies within those wounds mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I i went to a very progressive college very recently and and i was subjected to these uh these privilege workshops like at the beginning of every year and and i, I really wish that like you guys were the ones who were who were teaching this stuff because instead of uh having the the professor or whatever like uh, outline who's the most privileged therefore they need right. to be the most subservient which is what they literally did which is literally what hitler did too you know it would it, it, it was would, it was it would be great um and i really hope that that somehow you guys your curriculum can just go into all these different spaces that are for inclusion and diversity and equity which in my research is basically the opposite what you guys have going is truly the key is truly the stuff that that everybody else is claiming to have not everybody but but these other departments have do you guys have any plans of making this curriculum bringing it to workshops and 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 trying to get into the academy a bit uh it, it's funny you should mention that benjamin because we were actually uh i it's the nature of these things is like yeah we've been like putting the finishing touches on this curriculum for about the past nine months um, well, I thought still, you were going to say nine years, but yeah, yeah we're, we're still yeah, nine months. It's a human gestation yeah. period. Um, we're, we're very close to, uh, releasing a, a package of curriculum based on our work and these themes that we discussed today. Uh, we're very excited about it. And, um, in the meantime, Partip and I do professional development for teachers. We, we teach classes. Um, I've done I've done white privilege workshops for teachers, mm-hmm. and and I'll, I continue to do them. And and the first thing I talk about is is uh, really the the loaded nature of that term, and and how is it, it it's unfortunately like used as a bludgeon to 
silence people and to try to establish some sort of like hierarchical order of like who gets to talk and who gets to be listened to and who doesn't get to be listened to. Um, and, and that's step one to really like find the value in this idea of privilege. And, and mm. I do find value in it. it. It's again, we were talking about words earlier. Like we need the right vocabulary to, to mm. talk about this, this situation that we're in. And there, there was a time when privilege like could have been a, a very valuable a uh, bit of hmm. vocabulary, but it, it's been so politicized and so just hmm. beat to death and, and so misused that it's it's really something that I I don't uh, it's not something I'll, I'll I use unless I'm asked idea. to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and what's so the what's the useful it, concept? What's the useful well, use of that concept? I mean? The useful concept is, is just that uh, it, this is when I do a white privilege workshop. The first thing I talk about is this. Uh, my grandpa, Georgie, my, my mother's dad, uh, flew, he was a navigator in a B-17 during World War II. It, they, his, he flew a number of missions, bombing missions over Germany. He literally came back on a wing and a prayer, like numerous times. That's where that phrase came from. Like he's in this plane that's so shot up, it's like just barely getting back to the UK. And, and he risked his life to earn the opportunities he was given via the GI Bill. So when he returned to the United States via the GI Bill, he was given a mortgage and he was given a student loan. Now these are both loans. He wasn't like handed a big pile of money to here to go buy a house and go to school. Mm -hmm. Like these are mm -hmm. loans that he had to pay back. There was a lot of uh, work that he had to do to realize these opportunities he was given. And he did that work. He became, he went to school, he became an oral surgeon. He uh, made great money. He, he bought a house. He paid the house off. He bought other houses. He, he built a lot of the wealth that my family still enjoys. And, and frankly, this is wealth that allows me at 48 to be like, I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to be an author. Yeah. I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to do that. I get to take all these risks that people who don't have this family wealth couldn't do because they'd be like, oh, I got to pay the damn bills. I, yeah. And now there's a, people of every demographic who are in that situation where they, they don't have the, the luxury that I have, the privilege that I have. And there's people of, of uh, every social people on the other side, people who are born into these opportunities. The, the reason this is where race comes into this is because even though the GI Bill after World War II was expressly uh, stated that it can't be discriminated against they can't discriminate against the people who get it the the facts were that first of all the the military was segregated and very few black people were allowed into the military so first mm. of all there's there's fewer black gis so they're, they're not going to get the same opportunities that my grandpa got second of all the administration of the gi bill was left up to local municipalities hmm. so even though that the language at the federal level says you can't discriminate if a black soldier walks into the, the county office in the sticks of Alabama and says, hey, I'd like my G bill mortgage, they'd be like, yeah, sorry, uh, you don't get it because of this, because of that. And, and they're being denied the, the same opportunities that my grandpa was given. Now, the GI Bill, like 99% of it went to white people because of these various factors. And that means people like my grandpa and like all, I grew up in a, bougie white suburb all the kids i knew 
all had this same kind of generational wealth to hmm. draw on and to take risks from. And, and there's black kids in my neighborhood. There's more black people in my neighborhood than there were when I was a kid. Um, they are, are in the process of building that generational wealth. But the whole yeah. baby boom generation came from wealth that was not uh, allowed to people of color. So mm -hmm. that, that's that's an example of white privilege. And, and the important caveat when you're discussing this is that my grandpa earned everything he got. He risked his life for this mortgage and his student loan. He paid it all back. He worked his ass off. And, and that's why when people say, yeah. th this is what kills the usefulness of white privilege, yeah. is when people say, if you're white, everything you have is because of the color of your skin. It's not because you worked. And, and that, that's, that's utter bullshit. Mm -hmm. That that but I, everything I have is because my grandpa risked his life and he busted his ass. Mm -hmm. That it's it, it wasn't just given to me because of my skin color. So when, when people, again, when when you're an activist and, and you're not mindful of trauma and you mm -hmm. let your own trauma make you say things like, oh, everything you have is because of the color of your skin, your work and your achievement has nothing to do with it. That when when you get to like that level of inflammatory bullshit, you are now crippling the value of the concepts that you're trying to wield yeah. in a direction, yeah. and and that, and it sucks. It sucks because it, it, it this makes my objective of bringing about a society where everyone is valued and included all the more difficult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you you have to. It, it seems like you have to it seems like you're aimed at, at educating people and it seems like you have a handle on that. It seems like, like your, your real annoyance is with the people who, like you said, are like on your side or going in the same direction, but, but making it much more difficult for you, whether they're, they're, uh, you know, well-intentioned or not or, or whatever. Right. But like, even, even then you, you're able to have compassion. And, and I'm glad that we had this talk today because I could, I could, I myself could be a little bit more compassionate. Um, toward that group yeah, specifically because I, I want to get past criticizing them. I want to get to right. a place where we can get beyond the inflammatory of this last few years. We need to get beyond this. Um, it, it's everybody's getting bored with it. If you're not bored with it, you'll be bored with it pretty soon. <laughs> trust me. Um, so, so we need to start building bridges. And, and I think like the, the, the way that you define compassion really brings me back to like working with a kid who scrapes their knee and they're totally caught up in their pain. Um, and, and instead of recognizing the pain, I would recognize them first and then recognize their pain. But like my recognition was that they and their pain are two different things. The pain does right. not, def the, the pain does not define them. It defines their state right now. And so right. the compassion to me, like just uh, riffing off you is to recognizing the human element first and then recognizing Absolutely. the pain. And then we can proceed towards solutions where we don't uh, magnify that pain, where that pain can be dealt with as a, as a problem that has a solution rather than this ontological, uh, <laughs> you know, completely like saturating thing that, that mires us indefinitely. Brilliantly said, man. I, 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 that, that's a, a great way to sum it all up. So um, I'm going to plug you, and thanks for coming on. I, I should uh, let you go now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope sometime. I, I hope sometime uh, maybe I can get Pardeep or you and Pardeep on the line at some point. I'd love to be able to to speak with him and 
And I'm, I'm really looking forward to your curriculum. Like if you guys are going to be able to push that out, I'd love to, to see that. Absolutely. Um, I, <clears throat> you know me by now, Benjamin, if, if the best advice I can give you is maybe like a couple months from now, I'll be like, Hey, how's it going? How's that curriculum going? <laughs> is it, that's, that's the way to, uh, to get stuff done. As far as I'm concerned, it's, I, I'm usually so overwhelmed with, uh, yeah. Find on emails that I, I need people to chase me down. And I appreciate you doing that as I really enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Uh, tell, say, say hi to your mom for me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah. You have a good night. You too, brother. Cheers. Yeah.